This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. For the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. In addition to three collections of poetry, Institute fellow Honor Moore is the author of several celebrated works of nonfiction, including The White Blackbird, A Life of the Painter Margaret Singer by her granddaughter, and The Bishop's Daughter, a celebrated memoir of her father. In her newest book, Our Revolution, A Mother and Daughter in Mid-Century, Moore provides a fascinating portrait of the life of her mother and the dynamics of their relationship. I spoke with her recently about the book, about women's lives and second wave feminism, about writing a hybrid of biography and memoir, and about the experience of publishing in the middle of a pandemic. Thank you for doing this remotely. Let me ask you first just to describe the genesis of this particular project. The genesis was that I, oh, the early 1980s, I couldn't fit my grandmother, Margaret Sargent, my mother's mother, into a poem. I couldn't find her paintings on the walls when I went to women's art exhibitions. So I wrote a biography of her, suddenly became a biographer. That book, The White Blackbird, which is named after a portrait of her by George Lukes, was published in 1996. Subsequent to that, I discovered that my father, Paul Moore, had led a hidden bisexual life all of my life. This was a shock and caused me to rethink my entire life. He died about 13 years after that discovery, and I began to write a book, The Bishop's Daughter, a memoir, which reframed my relationship with him in the context of this new information. It's a kind of dual you know, memoir and biography. After that was published, people would say, well, what about your mother? And I would say things like, well, I wrote about her. She died when I was 27 and she was 50. And that was the beginning of my life as a writer. And I wrote a lot about her then in poems and a play about her dying about the last year of her life called Morning Pictures. I began to realize that, in fact, I had written that in my 20s and I was now in my late 60s. And my mother had died at 50. And I thought if she stayed 50, I was sort of becoming her mother in a way, generationally. And I thought this would be a new story. She was born in 1923, three years into suffrage. And she died in 1973, three years into second wave feminism, actually more like seven years into second wave feminism. And she was someone who read the feminine mystique. And after having had nine children and led the life of a clergy wife, a particular kind of mid-century oppression, wrote a very successful book, which was published in 1968 and by then had developed as an activist. Then there's the actual genesis, which is that she left me in her will, her unfinished writing. So what was I going to do with it? And I struggled with that for about 45 years before finally deciding to do this book in which I intertwine her first-person writings and her fiction 
and her childhood poems. Who knew? I thought she had started writing in the 1960s out of the blue when she wrote her book, but actually, no, she had always been a writer. When I asked a question about the Genesis, I thought that you would talk about the fact that she left you these papers and that it was always something that was there, that it was the project ready to be developed. And actually, I think what you said was a lot more interesting, but it also gives this sense of having two starting points. Well, I would say they collide. So there were maybe three. So there's the starting point that comes out of my own work. And then there's the starting point that comes out of her bequest to me, which is Uh not only a bequest of her unfinished writing, but also I came to realize pretty quickly her unfinished life as an independent woman writer which is the life I have led. And then the third Mm -hmm. thing is I have always had an interest in these women at mid-century who, Mm -hmm. after being what Mary McCarthy called overeducated, were thrown back into the kitchen and motherhood writ large after they had been prepared by their grandmothers and great-grandmothers, in my mother's case, Her great-grandmother actually was a suffragist or a contributor Mm -hmm. to suffrage, the first wave women's movement. And now the granddaughter doesn't get to reap these benefits. She's suddenly in the kitchen. She's making motherhood and kitchenhood interesting because Mm -hmm. that's what she's supposed to do. I mean, in fact, as a clergy wife in Jersey City, my father's first parish She entered as an equal member of a team ministry, which sort of involved housing advocacy and social work. And in addition, she was doing the housework and having, by the time we left in the fall of 1957, there were seven children. There had been three when we got there. Did you kind of go into this with this sense that this odd relationship you will have to your mother, that you will be mother to her at this point in in the writing? Well, I would say that that emerged. But on the other hand, I did have the experience from the prior two family books that my grandmother very quickly became Margaret, not grandma. And that my father, although he remained my father, became a kind of entity independent of the person I had known. So that the process of writing the book about my mother, it's an odd experience of discovery. So I would, let's say, have the memory of meeting Dorothy Day and hearing the name when I was a child and then going into the research, discovering actually that Dorothy Day was a kind of role model of my mother and and discovering the history of a relationship in my mother's letters with her dear friend, Pam Morton, which were a great source. My mother is a great sort of narrative letter writer, you know, and 2,000 pages of letter writing with my father and letter writing Uh with me. I would discover that this childhood kind of wonderful uh, combination of words, Dorothy Day, was also a person with a history and that her history merged into my my mother's history. The experience becomes a discovery of the person through the research of connecting childhood flashes of memory with actual history and discovering, Mm -hmm. for instance, letters from 
my mother in Dorothy Day's papers at Marquette and discovering that when my mother wrote about Grant Park in Chicago during the 1968 Democratic Convention, that she published that in the Catholic Worker, which was the newspaper of the Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker were publishers of, that she had discovered as a 22-year-old when my father was at General Seminary and she was going to Union Seminary, which I only discovered doing the research. And it became an inspiration for her. But then she's later publishing in that paper herself. And then Dorothy Day ends up at her funeral and publishing a tribute to my mother in The Catholic Worker. So these are things I didn't know. I didn't know the kind of extent of who she was in the world. Right. Which is a kind of uh, insight that you have working as a biographer, I think, more than a memoir. And it calls on a different set of conditions of genre and, and approaches to genre, which you may or may not have expected to have to engage with the onset of the project, right? Well, I'm not interested in memoir that doesn't take up historical or social context, because who is a person independent of her or his world? So Mm -hmm. there has to be some way of pulling that in. You know, in my view, I I don't see it as a contradiction to memoir to provide historical context. And but I also have a kind of axe to grind, which is a kind of, I suppose, literary axe or literary history axe, is that my mother's family is a very I don't like to say old family because every family is an old family. But Uh it's a family of which there are records going back to the 1600s and coming up through when Boston was the so-called Athens of America. My father's family is a kind of act robber baron family coming up Mm -hmm. from Chicago and into New York and the beginnings of American capitalism and so on. And these kinds of figures have been recorded in American fiction since American fiction began, you know, you have Henry James and, you know, let's say Sinclair Lewis or mm-hmm. um, William Dean Howells. And I, as an inheritor of that tradition, am frustrated by it because it doesn't really mm-hmm. completely tell the story of who my family was. So yeah. partly what I'm trying to do is to say, hey, no, this is what really happened. I realize that there are a lot of different stories of what really happened, but that really has been a kind of obsession of mine, mm-hmm. which is why I'm not a novelist, <laughs> at least as far <laughs> as this material is concerned. One question I've had, which I think you've you've you've, start, you've, uh, you've addressed, and you and you're also answering in that that uh, that response is the 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 way that this book. You know, the question of how this book might have been possible or not possible without the existence of the bishop's daughter. Would you say that they're to be read as something like a diptych? I actually consider it a trilogy, starting Uh with The White Blackbird, which lays out my mother's inheritance. She comes into it as a child, but I didn't really scrutinize her. But it's sort of from Margaret's point of view, and she comes into The Bishop's Daughter but sort of from my father's point of view. So the three books are in conversation. The White Blackbird takes my mother up to her marriage, let's say. Then the bishop's daughter turns over the pasture that 
will be an enclosure or for our revolution. But in addition, there are the dynamics of a daughter's relationship with her father, uh, the specific of my relationship with my father. Uh, I remember going to some 9 a.m. event and this woman raises her hand and says, thank you for writing a book about complicated daughters of complicated fathers. And I said, oh, yeah. yes, these men with power. And she said, oh, my father was a farmer. You know, <laughs> Then you get the relationship not only of a mother and a daughter, but of a daughter whose mother died when she was 27. That's young, as it turns out. I mean, at the time, I thought I was really grown up. So I'm going back to find out what that land was from my mother's point of view, which sort of brings me to another issue, which is what happens when you put a woman in the center of her own story? When you wrench my mother, Jenny, out of Mrs. Moore, mom, Jenny, who's everybody's go-to person for the next demonstration. I would think that would be a massively complicated uh, task to do that. I mean, I was going to ask you about the relative difficulties of writing about the dynamics of a relationship with your father versus one writing about the dynamics of a relationship with your mother. Did you find it much more difficult to write about the latter? My mother died in 1973, and I would say I had obsessively grieved my mother, but obsessively thought about my father since then. My yeah. father, in a way, was remote. He was warm, but remote, and mm-hmm. we had a very complicated relationship. My mother was remote, you know, she had eight other children and she had a life. So in that way, she was remote when she was alive. But by the time I started writing about her, she had been dead for more than 40 years. I started the book about my grandmother right after she died. I started the book about yeah. my father right after he died. So they were in living memory. My mother was no longer in living memory. So mm-hmm. the first stage was to recover living memory. That was a process of kind of memory writing, kind of using my poet self to get images from memory and write them. And then at the same time, start to make a chronology. And then at also the same time, trying to put into that timeline, which I always do with my books, what's going on culturally that has to do with the subject. And then there's the added thing when somebody is not you know, Michelangelo or Edna St. Vincent Millay, of creating interest in the character through the process of the book. You want to make Mm -hmm. the reading experience compelling. So that's the literary aspect of it. You can't get somebody to read about an unknown person without writing a book that interests them in that person. Bringing together all those different strands, I'm sure it entailed the good bit of rewriting, of rethinking, of starting and stopping. Was that more pronounced in this case? Yes, because I would say, well, you remember what my <laughs> the office I was in looked like. I mean, yeah. like I was like in a pile of papers the entire time, papers and photographs. But I would say that in the case of the white blackbird, she was a powerful woman artist who stopped painting. Why? Uh-huh. And my father was someone who had led a hidden life. What was that like for him, you know, let's say? But in my mother's yeah. case, I didn't really know what the story was in a way. I mean, right. it was a kind right. of 
possible story. You know, everybody assumed that it was my father's idea to have nine children. No, everybody assumed that my father forced my mother into the kitchen. Well, no, not exactly. There were contradictions in received narratives in this book more than for the other two, in a way. And one of them had to do with what I've started to think about since the book came out, which is that the part of the book that's the story of our relationship introduces an idea of a kind of what I call a third stage in a mother-daughter relationship. You have the the mother-daughter, and then you have the mother-daughter fighting. And culturally, for the most part, the image of mother and daughter stalls at the fighting. And culturally, they're really not a lot of thinking about mothers and daughters coming together when the mothering is over. And then, then what happens between a mother and a daughter? And I learned from writing this book that that was what was truncated by my mother's early death. You have that great image at the beginning of your book of the Courier and Ives uh, yes. print. It puts me in mind of that. In a, and that's an ironic thing that's hanging on her wall, I think, in some way. But that's a kind of fascinating, tropic thing to bring up in relationship to what you're saying about that third stage that we don't really have a model for. During the, the long courtship with your mother and, and your father, there are so many places where you you get really exasperated with it. I mean, it's just, it's so involved and getting married was so complicated, particularly during wartime. It's something that biographers often sort of wrestle with this idea that you come to, but time's not really like your subject so much. Was that kind of an issue for you in this book? I would say I didn't like them. I would just say it was like, suddenly there they were, they were in their twenties and they're sort of the age of my students or my nieces and nephews, whatever. And it's like, If I have an office hour with a student, you know, and she tells me a narrative like the one I'm telling of my mother and father's two-year courtship, which is 2,000 pages of letters, I'm saying, like, get on with it. It was fun to have the freedom, which memoir gives you, to say, I've been trying to get my parents married for months. That was fun. I mean, that's an actual thing. You know, that's not really contrived. When you're writing about people, you do get into relationship with them. And I talk to novelist friends who have the same experience. You know, they become your characters and they take off on their own. You know, I couldn't get them, my parents, into a kind of neat, I mean, it may have looked like a neat post-war marriage, but I thought it was important to tell the story of the on-again, off-again, because it's sort of the truth of courtship period. Was her paper trail pretty consistent throughout her life? Was she as diligent a diarist and letter writer all the way to the end? The sources change. You know, I have her childhood writings. They called it tutored, but it would now be called homeschool. They had a brilliant brother and sister who were respectively governess and tutor, but who were like Boston Irish brilliant people. So there's a lot of childhood writing. Then comes letter, letter, letter. She was an obsessive letter writer. I mean, she would have loved email. Thank God it wasn't email because I have like piles and piles and piles and piles of letters. I luckily had the correspondence with her and my father. Courtship letters are not just 
oh, darling, I love you there. Yesterday I did this and I did that and my sister this and my friends that and I went here and I went there. She was a very lively writer. So those are kind of diaristic. I had my own correspondence with her. I had her dear friend, Pam Morton, who's a wife of uh, Dean Morton of the St. John the Divine, and they had all worked together since Jersey City, on and off. I had my mother's intermittent diaries and her fiction. I had her college fiction, and then she wrote a book, and the book covered early Jersey City. And then there were 25 years of scrapbooks, which were very interestingly narrative. In other words, it wasn't just friends' letters and lovely photographs of children. It was what was going on politically, what was going on in Jersey City, ironic captions. And yes, the Courier and Ives on the Wall was ironic. I've only kind of vaguely and superficially thought about this, but I think the trajectory of women's lives often is like successive arches rather than one large trajectory. I love that about that passage in the book, the image of successive arches, an incredible figure. And I think it works very well. The triple rainbow, yeah. Right, the triple rainbow. While we were working on this, we were working on that anthology for the Library of America with Alex Kate Schulman. How did the experience of thinking about your mother's life inform your thoughts about second wave feminism? Well, I was very much involved in second wave feminism, as you know, less as one of the pioneers as... Well, I mean, I was sort of that, but I was more a beneficiary early on of people like Alex, who were five to 10 years older than me. I would say that doing the anthology at exactly the same time kept reminding me of the context of women's history. And in the opposite direction, I started making distinctions between my mother's generation and mine. And one of the things we were talking about at the end of her life was feminism, Ms. Magazine, etc. And we watched the Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs tennis match from her bed, the same room where the Courier and Ives print was. Although it's not so easy to do two major projects at the same time, I was grateful for the kind of interplay between the two. I would say the main thing that changed was my sense of my mother as a kind of avatar of the Betty Friedan generation and myself as a kind of avatar of the second wave generation. And it it kind of solidified my thinking about the Betty Friedan group being our mothers and us being the daughters and the movement being simultaneous. In a way, second wave feminism is at least two strands. There's the Betty Friedan generation, the women's rights generation, the kind of uh, Betty Friedan, Polly uh, Marshall, Shirley Chisholm. And then there's Second Wave and the kind of Red Stockings, more radical group. And these two groups coexisted. And, and then there's, of course, lesbian feminism, black feminism, Chicana feminism. There are all these feminisms coming together. and. That Mm -hmm. really did keep me awake to what had gone on during that period. Yeah. I want to just ask you one thing before we sign off. What's it like to have a book come out in this world? Well, it it was interesting. (laughs) I would say that my mother's spirit 
which the title in a way comes from. She had a kind of revolutionary spirit in the way that one is reborn and reborn and reborn. I mean, I had a moment, of course, when every single event of my book tour was canceled in within two days of despair. But I had also met up with some people who were helping me, including um, this wonderful Parsons graduate, Alyssa Shea, young woman who'd been helping me with Instagram and a video instead of a PowerPoint. My friend Liz Harris says, I've been making really interesting lemonade out of lemon of the pandemic. I just decided, no, this was seven years work. This was maybe my best book. I am not going to knuckle under to this. Luckily, the new uh-huh. school where I teach didn't kill my event. It made it virtual. And, you know, we had 250 people there and 700 viewing it within 24 hours after. And I just have continued with these virtual events. I turned an event with Claire Massoud that was going to be at the Genealogical Society in Boston to an event for a site called howwriterswrite.com, which I'd never heard of before. So it's been a very interesting process. And the 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 sort of charge I'm uh, leading at the moment with my little cadre is uh, the a Mother's Day and cadre at Norton and and me is and Alyssa and Robert and Michael Lalo have also been helping friends uh, uh-huh. uh, for a Mother's Day um, event which is going to take place on you know Instagram and Facebook and culminate in a an event with Emily Bernard which is going to be live streamed out of Prairie Lights Books in Iowa City. Meanwhile, I'm in New York. Yeah. And, Emily is in Vermont, and <laughs> so I uh-huh. just tried to the Mother's Day idea imagination. Really cool idea. I mean, I guess there's a way to you know interacting with people virtually. Maybe it you know makes it so that people can talk to you in a different way about the book, and you certainly can interact with a lot more people. It seems like than you can in you know a lot of book events. Yeah, and um, you know I love all the stories of. I mean. I my sister did an event with me. I did an uh, event via mi- my sister in Minneapolis. It was sort of her, her, you know, a uh, hundred best friends. And the bookseller for that was Birchbark Books, which is Louise Erdrich's bookstore, and they do curbside mm-hmm. and mail. So we were able to promote the bookstore, uh, and Trish Hample you know, still introduced me and it was Marion's friends and Marion, my sister read some letters of hers from my mother. And we had been going to do that in Minneapolis for, you know, 50 people in Minneapolis. And now, you know, we're going to post it on honormore.com and it will be available to more people. So it's a kind of, it is interesting. I don't want to give up the feel of an audience at a book event is so wonderful to an author. But on the other hand, I have had equivalent feelings. The only sad thing is when you get off the Zoom link and you're all alone in your uh, at your dining room table. But then you get all these emails and chats and posts. And <laughs> it's sort of wild. And it's definitely in the spirit of my mother, who famously asked my sister Marion, who was then in her teens, 
you know, Malcolm Boyd, who was an activist Episcopal Church, would you like to go to with Father Boyd to the Pentagon tomorrow? He's going to do a demonstration there. You might get arrested. Is that okay? Sure, Mom, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> That'll be cool. <laughs> and they were arrested, you know. And they were arrested. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Honor. Well, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book and really happy that we could we could do this. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at www.nyihumanities.org.